Words, they get golly hard when they jumble Jumping over hurdles, slowing birds like a turtle Merkin fool, like Squirtle and Kate Gould Cold blood is with this rhyme scheme, I'm a boss Flip the coin, toss, it's draws, I'm out of loss How my brains get busted, slinging letters into couplets Muck up the subjects This is That Got Me Thinking, and I'm Ellie Newman. This week, I've been thinking about the phrase to protect and serve. I've been thinking about its meaning and ramifications. I've been thinking about identity, stress, fear, guilt, sacrifice, and honor. I've been thinking about being in limbo between two worlds, the brain, mental health, isolation, depression, sleep, and perseverance, internal and external battles, support, education, escalation, and sensitivity. My guest today is a former Army Staff Sergeant, George Nickel. George Nickel will share the story of how post-traumatic stress, alcohol abuse, and a mission to find his dog led to an armed standoff with the Boise Police Department. The lethal force encounter would have ended very differently if not for the crisis intervention training provided to law enforcement. In addition, Sergeant Nickel was a driving force behind starting the Veterans Court in Boise. As well, he is a coordinator with the Idaho Veterans Network. Welcome, George, and thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to have you here. George, you had said, sharing my story is key to preventing potential dire situations. I just hope that talking with the community will help dispel any negative opinions of veterans returning to the home front or other people overcoming adversities. And we'll talk a lot about many things in that sentence. Um, Later on, definitely want to talk about your impression and feelings about the reception veterans get when they come home. Um, that that one part of the sentence made me incredibly sad to think that not only all the other things you're having to deal with, but to have to consider how you may be um, received and reacted to. Um, but to start with, for me, it was pretty incredible in all respects that you're here speaking with me today. Uh, after I had read some interviews that were done with you and then uh, saw the video you had participated in. So I'd like to start with talking about the factors that had come together that night of the standoff with police. And then later on, we can talk about the first responder training program, if that's all right with you. No, that's perfect. Okay, good. So um, you had been in Iraq, and you were home. Fill in the pieces. And then you were on your landing with a a rifle or some gun, and the police were shooting at you. So (laughs) and all the rest. Well, I guess it really starts uh, leaving Iraq. I was on February 2007. I was uh, in a vehicle that was hit by an improvised explosive device. I was the only survivor of the vehicle. Uh, was medevaced due to injuries, so I got to take a long trip. Ended up in Walter Reed Hospital in D.C. Uh, spent five months there doing like physical rehab, some surgeries, and then came back here to Boise or came to Boise, Idaho, for another six months of medical treatment, still on active duty. So at the end of that six months, the Army looks at you and they said, okay, well, that's as good as you're going to get. And they release you from active duty because I was in a reserve unit. So went back to my reserve unit. And had they been doing assessments throughout this period of your recovery? Or is it just something that at that one point they make that decision? Well, being here for the community-based health care, they get like, prior reports from the physical therapist, from the docs. So then they have the medical, army medical doctors that get all that information, they review it all. And they're the ones that decide, okay, you're 
And and was your intention to go back at this point? Was your hope to go back? Well, at that point, uh, I already had 16 years in the military. So I wasn't looking to get out. And, you know, they put me back together. I mean, couldn't run anymore, but anything else, I seemed to be doing okay. So I went back to my reserve unit, tried to go back to that, went back to my normal job. And there was really another, no... Nothing that really addressed, like, say, like the traumatic brain injury I received. And there was definitely no, like, education or anything about the post-traumatic stress that I may be dealing with in the future. It was just, okay, you're physically fit for duty, so go back to duty. And how much was that uh, a sort of internal or conversation among your unit and your friends in the military as to what that would look like if someone was injured and you're sent back home and, and post-traumatic stress and brain in- injuries. Were there conversations around any of that? Just to the fact, I mean, within, you know, myself, my peers, we all knew that if you came down with uh, a diagnosis put on your jacket saying that you had post-traumatic stress or traumatic brain injury, you're going to go through a medical board and you're going to be discharged. And I, I know in, in the video you talk about that when you were coming home and then had arrived home, you had no idea what had happened, you know, how you had gotten there. Well, actually, it was, uh, I have memory up to the night before the blast incident, and then my next really concrete memory is in the Walter Reed Hospital. So there's a good week in there of just, there's a few vague, really intangible memories that you don't know if really if they're a memory if you're just making up to fill in the blanks. But uh, a friend of mine who was still in Iraq with my unit uh, tracked me down to Walter Reed and gave me a call. And we're talking on the phone, and he actually just stopped the conversation. And he's like, you really don't have any clue what happened, do you? And I was like, well, no, I really don't. I'm here in Walter Reed, and that's all I know. And at the time, I wasn't really processing very much mentally anyway because of the brain injury and and from the outside like that was also surprising that he had no idea where you were and you had said that that was fairly typical that once you were sent out they didn't really communicate to people that were still back in the unit where you were what was going on that he had to sort of literally track you down does that seem odd or to you (laughs) That's, that's the military. Yeah. I mean, you go, like, I got medevaced off the battlefield to uh, Fluja Surgical, and they do, they put you put you back together. They stabilize you. And then they move you to uh, a field hospital outside Blod, which is near Baghdad. And, again, you know, it's just stabilization, getting ready to, for the flight back. And did you know at that point what had happened to the guys you were with in, in your tank? No, I had no clue. And did your friend that tracked you down fill you in on that as well? Yes, that was, and that was the first time you had heard. I had heard. So they were managing that as well. Well, I found <laughs> out uh, when they came to visit me because I spent a few days in Fallujah, which yeah. is where we were stationed. They were coming to see me, and they told me multiple times. It's just I wasn't tracking uh, any memories you at didn't that have time. It. All right, so you're back. Yes. You're put together as best as they could, and you're now living in Boise. Correct. And you'd been there for a few months and hoping to go back. And I know there was a lot of stress and anxiety and, and being in limbo about waiting to see if you would be sent back. And you were under the impression at one point that you were, that it was a go, right? 
Correct. I had a unit all lined up to take me. Uh, it was normal army bureaucracy, which spanned a few months. And at that time, I had packed up my life there in Boise. And your home. And my home and all my belongings. Everything in storage. And, yeah. Because, I mean, you're, you're going away for anywhere from a year to 18 months. And you were married at the time, and your wife was also heading off. Right. She was in a reserve unit out of Texas. So in preparation, because she was being deployed with her unit. So moved her to Texas, came back here to Idaho, put everything in storage. And actually, I was living on Gowan Field there in Boise, Idaho. And so was there an actual decision made that you were not going? Or was, again, that sort of a result of the, the bureaucracy? It was, it was a lot of, oh, you're going, you're not going, you're going, you're not going, redoing paperwork, stuff like that. Until finally, it was like three or four months later, uh, the higher command came down and said, you're not going, quit asking, except I guess they used a little bit more colorful language. And do you have any idea sort of where or when that decision had been made? Uh, somewhere in Chicago, which is where the unit is. and But that's that's a really frustrating point because there's no, they don't give you any reason. Yeah, I was going to ask if you know what that was based on. No. No, just no. Just no. Uh, so that door shut, and you were in, in the military for how long? 16, 16 years. Yeah. And um, so you hadn't been sleeping. You were experiencing post-traumatic stress, and you now know brain injuries. At that time, did you know that, that you were suffering from both of those? Well, I knew I was diagnosed with a traumatic brain injury, mm-hmm. and I went through some therapy here locally in Boise, uh, which gets you, you know, and it's like trying to find out, like, adaptive aids. I mean... This was a little bit before smartphones. So, you know, like doing day planners, stuff like that, because there's still those memory issues. So, I mean, I live by my smartphone now. And you hadn't slept in three days. At that at that time, before the shoot incident, that was correct. But, I mean, insomnia is still a problem to this day, and that was, you know, almost 10 years ago. Which we know from more and more research, even as of late, um, how debilitating that is and how every function is affected. And especially when you're dealing with all the other things like the post, all the symptoms of post-traumatic stress, depression, anxiety. When you're not sleeping, it just amplifies all those other symptoms. And so you're having the symptoms. You talked about like daily anxiety. Um, you talked a little bit about threat recognition and that you sort of had things that we might not identify an average person as something that is threatening, a piece of rubber sitting on the road, to you, all of a sudden, that's you're trained for alarms to start going off. Well, that's what what we did every day in Iraq. We drove down the street. We looked for threat indicators. Because the insurgents putting the bombs in the road, they would hide them just with normal everyday camouflage, trash, and you talked about how quickly they were hidden, that you had on this particular day when the tank had been blown up, that you were driving down the street, you had cleared it, but a half hour later coming back, you cleared it again because it didn't mean that they hadn't come out and replaced the the bombs. Well, what we found out after the fact is, unlike the hastily emplaced ones we deal with a lot, they'd actually gone through, they dug the hole, they dug the road up, planted the IEDs, went back, filled it all in, and actually paved over it and made like quick release connectors coming out the side of the road so they can just run up plug a triggering device into it so that night when you had your confrontation with the police um you had lost your dog 
I thought I did. Yeah. Which my son wants to know if you found your dog. That was his question. Has he? Did he get the dog back? I'm like, I don't know. I will find out. Very but, common question. And turns out the dog was hiding in the, in the apartment. Oh, those dachshunds are sneaky. They we are. have We have they one. Are. Stubborn and sneaky. But so you went out, um, and at that point you had felt that you, there was a threat. And so you geared up mm-hmm. and went looking for the dog, um, shot out some doors the police were called and then you were found yourself face to face in a confrontation with the police pointing weapons at you shooting at you not realizing initially that they were the police correct and then at some point thank god and and anyone else we may need to give credit to you realized that you were not they were not a threat and you said that 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 realization saved your life that night well because if i would identify them with the threat uh, and it turned into actual an exchange of gunfire. Uh, I didn't fire any shots at the police that night. Uh, it would have ended with. But you had your gun pointed toward them, correct? With the the flashlight, so yes. they were feeling <laughs> might be. A, well, they have a to. Threat. They have to act yeah. on their training. Yeah. When someone points a gun at them, they have to protect themselves first and foremost. And so they had been trained with uh, first responder training to deal with someone who is suffering from um, post-traumatic stress or mental illness. Um, And so they then talked talked you down or talked the situation down. And one of the things that's reinforced after that event, uh, and if you watch the whole video, it actually goes into like a lessons learned at the very end of it. And... Like, one of the things, the reasons I couldn't really comprehend what was going on is, you know, because, like, you got lights and sirens and people yelling and a bunch of people yelling. And then, you know, like, I pointed I pointed my weapon down the stairs, so they shot at me. And it was finally, it was one officer actually got a, an individual dialogue with me. And it was it was really that is what... That was the turning point. ...focus... And we'll go through those elements at the end, towards the end of the show of what those specific steps are that they focus on. And it's it's so great, I'm sure, for them to know as well that that's what made the difference. So I want to talk a little bit about um, post-traumatic stress in general. We'll take just a short break, and then we'll come back. This is Ellie Newman on That Got Me Thinking. I'm talking with former Staff Sergeant George Nickel. We'll be back in just a moment. Stay with us. All right, we're back. This is Ellie Newman on That Got Me Thinking. And we're talking now just a little bit about uh, post-traumatic stress syndrome. Um, For many with post-traumatic stress, the terror and adrenaline of past life-threatening moments don't go away. And what seems mundane to the rest of us, like I said, maybe a piece of rubber by the roadside, can set off a past experience. Um, Those with PTSD can experience survivor's guilt, reliving, past experiencing, questioning their actions in those experiences, a weird duality in memory failings, insomnia, alcohol abuse, and isolation. And so, George, you said you were had been suffering from in, insomnia. When you talk about the, they mentioned a little bit the weird duality. What's that experience like? Uh, in relation to the insomnia? I think in relationship to like your day-to-day awareness as to being able to decipher like what's, and maybe the, in, in that night, you know, what's real, what's happening now, um, whether something is a threat or not a threat, kind of maybe having your emotional um, sensory experiences partly being the triggers from where you'd spent the last 16 years versus walking down the street in Boise. Okay, I mean, 
That's a really good question. The, it's it's kind of hard to explain at times because you almost it's it's like you get ambi- ambushed by your own brain. Like when I talk about you know like if I see something on the side of the road that reminds me of a particular bomb back in Iraq, in that instantaneous second, my brain is saying that's a bomb and it believes it wholeheartedly. I mean because I've gone through like a lot of you know therapy, learned a lot more about my own triggers, my own awareness of how I react to things. I can, I can dial it back down pretty quickly now, but things still catch me unaware. And it's not like I leave the house in the morning and I'm like, okay, I got to scan the roadsides because there might be bombs out there. I mean, I have the presence of mind to know, okay, the chances of there being a bomb on the side of the road in Boise, Idaho is, is next to nil. And then you go out there and not even thinking, you're thinking about your day, just like everybody else, you know, worrying about the commuters around you, you know, people not paying attention to driving. And then just all of a sudden you, you catch that thing on the side of the road and it's just that instantaneous, your brain tells you that's a bomb. And it's really doing it because you've experienced something like that. And the brain has a funny way of saying, you know what, when things are trying to kill me, I need to remember that. So it, it brings that memory back to the forefront. And for some who haven't really worked through how to how to judge their own self-awareness or how to deal with their reactions or ground themselves back to where they're at can have what they what they refer to as like, like flashbacks where it's it's a much longer much more in-depth I mean for me I don't know by definition it's a natural flashback because I know I'm still in Boise Idaho but my brain is still telling me that that is something from Iraq and to go into survival mode right not just your survival but everyone else was depending on you to react that way well because everybody in the vehicle because we did route clearance which our job was to go out and find IEDs which means you get into a truck it's an armored truck it was designed for uh, mine detection and you drive down the road at five miles an hour staring at the roadside and hopefully you find the bomb before it finds you and that's all you do. So you get really, really good at and in tune with, uh, they call it change detection, a lot of routes you do over and over again. And you're looking for anomalies that weren't there the previous day. So you're really plugged into that. And your brain does start learning, okay, here's, here's what, you know, is out to kill you. And it's not just you, like you said. I mean, for myself, there was three other other soldiers in the vehicle with me, and everybody has different sections they look at. So, yeah, so if I miss something or someone else miss something, then it can prove fatal for all of us. And for the next convoy that's coming down that road, for instance, when you guys went out to get retrieve the bodies in the helicopter. Correct, and that was a big thing with our job, being where our sole mission was to remove improvised explosive devices, where we felt that if we can pull a bomb out of the ground, that means we probably saved someone else's life who maybe not were trained as well as us or has the equipment to deal with being involved in an explosion. So for us, doing our job well meant we saved lives. And the same thing that becomes a challenge in Boise is what's saving your life and everyone else's life there. Correct. <laughs> so uh, after that, um, you put your weapon down, uh, you were arrested, you spent eight months in jail. Did you receive any treatment um, in those eight months and support when you were there? Uh, no, I got medication to help me sleep. Medication. And you were in a, a cell, the pretty storage time. During that time, though, 
there was some changes that took place as far as connecting you with some um, or different organizations and collaboration as far as uh, working with your charges. And we'll, and we'll talk about that a little bit um, later. You said in uh, the Private Combat Police Inven- Intervention for Veterans in Crisis video, you gain knowledge on what the VA has to offer and get you what you need. Um, two things. Um, I, I know you found out a lot about that in jail or after jail, after those eight months. Um, and then did you feel like there was enough? Like when you realized what was out there uh, that you hadn't known about before, did you feel then or do you feel now that it's, it's enough? I mean, there's a lot of resources available for treatment uh, through the VA, through private practices within the community. There's There's two different reasons why it was difficult for myself at the time and for other veterans that I've worked with in the communities. Because at the time, when I got back from Walter Reed in that period of time between 07 and 09, like I said, I was trying to stay in the military. So I had to go see counselors while I was on active duty because that's part of that whole medical. But I wasn't looking for treatment because once again, I felt that if I received any diagnosis or anything on my record saying I was experiencing problems with post-traumatic stress that I would be discharged and not have the opportunity to deploy again. So you're conscious during these two years of that dance you're doing. Oh, yeah. That, yes, you kind of know you need help and you might want some help in these areas, but yet again, if you open up and, and admit to even needing the help, then you're you're no longer going to be able to have your identity and your your livelihood and your future career. Well, and it was it, it was on both sides because not just the military side of the house, but I also worked uh, at the state prison for my civilian job. So again, if you come down with you know like a mental health diagnosis that you're dealing with some of these issues, and then that could that could impede your continued employment. In those 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 venues there so really and there was also the other component which a lot of veterans deal with when I was when I was in active duty I started out in the infantry which you know your infantry is the guys that put on the packs and they go forward and their job is to go out and kill the enemy and that's it and it it really breeds a, a, a thought of you know any weakness is like blood in the water you're taught you know, well, if things are uncomfortable, well, too bad. You just get over it and deal with it. And if something's wrong with you, you, you know, drink more water, take some ibuprofen and change your socks and go on with your day. You don't go out looking for help because it's, it's, a, it's a culture of not needing outside help. So that plays with you a lot because you know things are wrong when you come back and you're dealing with the post-traumatic stress and the depression, anxiety, stuff like that. You know something's wrong. But you're telling yourself, well, you know what? I know something's wrong, but you know what? Maybe I just need to you know, get a better grip on myself. Maybe I need more physical training or drink more water. But I'll get over it. I can get over it myself. That you don't need help or support from outside. Right. I can do it myself. I can basically just walk it off, so to say. And do you think at that point there's even a sense that it exists? That if you were willing to not say, okay, I'd be tough and go alone, that there was any other option, that it, there would be something outside that could help? I had a little bit, you know, because I was told, you know, you can go get treatment at the VA. 
You know, there's those types of things available to you. But again, it's voluntary. If myself or any other service member out there in the community, if they decide, well, I don't want to go for those services, then I'm That's not. your choice. Yeah. And so two years you're in limbo. Um, the, this last period when you're packed, you're ready to go, you think you're, you're you know, moving ahead, uh, limbo is ending, you're isolated, you've packed up all your stuff, your wife's headed off, you're, you have insomnia. Um, one thing that came to mind was when I watched the video was your fire, the picture of your firearms and all your gear. And my first thought was, and this might seem very odd to you, but my first thought was watching it, well, he's got a lot of weapons. And that didn't seem like a good idea when I just had heard about the mental and physical state and situational state that you were in. Um, so is that very typical that when you come back, and, and especially if you're reserved, that you have all the stuff from war right there? I don't know if it's totally common. I mean, there's plenty of people I've served with, and now that are veterans, you still, most are avid shooters, and do it as a recreation. And a lot of those things, you know, my personal gear, those are things you you collect over the years of service. And, I mean, they become just your tools of your trade. You don't think of them as, like, my weapons, my body armor, my tactical vest. You don't think of it like that. I mean, it's no different than... My mechanic tools in my garage, they're just more tools. And do you feel that way about them still? Sort of now you have a perspective of maybe where you were mentally and emotionally at that point? Sort of how how far you'd been pushed into, into a corner? I still don't look them at Yeah, look still, at tools. still, still tools. Still tools. Because I mean, that, that's your identity. And that's something I want to just briefly talk about, because I asked you when you first came in how you wanted me to refer to you, because I'm like, okay, is he is he Sergeant George Nickel? Is he Sergeant Nickel? Is he former Sar- Staff Sergeant Nickel? You know, what is it? And seeing even the word former bothered me, and something I'd read about you where I said, you know, former Staff Sergeant George Nickel. I'm like, okay, he's very much here. He's not former, and yes, he was former Staff Sergeant, but... Um, I'm just wondering how much of an issue or how much thought or emotion is tied to that sense of identity for you. Well, and in fact, I I used the word former specifically. Uh, I didn't retire from the military. I was discharged. Uh, In fact, I got my discharge through an email after 16 years. So that's, you know. Pathetic. Yeah. But anyway, so... And I, this is something I really contemplated when I sat for eight months in that jail cell, is who I was. Because at that time, I was Staff Sergeant Nickel. In the prison, I was Sergeant Nickel. You know, most of my time in active duty, you could have erased my first name completely, and it, would have made it wouldn't have made a difference. Since that time, and now, and I use the word former specifically, because I'm not retired Sergeant George Nickel. I don't put something on my email tagline saying United States Army retired because one, I'm not. And two, I'm not in the Army anymore. I'm not sergeant anything anymore. I'm just George now. And does that feel okay? And did that take some getting used to? Took some getting used to, but now it it feels really good because there's no pretenses to who I am anymore. I can be a genuine person without having to put on a uniform to give me conditional self-worth. Which you'd said, I know that you'd been wearing a uniform since you were 18. 
Yep, straight out of high school, a month later, as in the Army. And they do a phenomenal job of indoctrinating you into military service. But on the flip side, it's needed to be able to survive for what you have to do in the military. And when you say indoctrinated, do you mean to shed your identity and adopt this new one? Oh, that's exactly what I mean. Because you got to think, when you go into, whether it be the Army, be it Marine Corps, any of the services, like the first things they do when you get there is they take away all your personal stuff, they shave your head, they put you in a uniform so you're just like everybody else, because they're, they're taking away yourself. You know, you can't refer to yourself as I anymore. It's recruit or, like I had a roster number. I was roster number 242 for, what, 13 weeks. So that definitely gets me thinking about maybe there's the whole right, the take away yourself, and, and I don't think there's any procedure for giving it back later on. There is no procedure. You're, when, you're, when you hit the end of your contract of service, going through a, like a medical retirement board is a little bit different. Being retired is a little bit different because you, you can plan for a retirement. Most of the time, be it one year, one enlistment, two enlistments, when a, when a person ends their enlistment, you just have a date. As soon as that date hits, you're out. There is no exit training. Uh, they do a few things, and they've gotten a lot better now with people getting out than they were you know, 20 years ago, where they're actually giving people classes now, you know, like resume writing, interviewing, stuff like that, to ter- try to prepare you. But if you've been in a number of years, and that's, that was your sole lifestyle for a few years, I mean, you would literally go from one day you're in uniform to the next day you're not. And you're supposed to make that seamless transition, just stepping from one world to the next. And they really don't overlap at all. The two worlds. All right. Well, this is Ellie Newman on That Got Me Thinking. I'm here with former Staff Sergeant George Nickel. And we'll be back in just a moment and we'll talk a little bit about um, brain injuries and the recognition of that and and what it's like to, to live with one. We'll be back in just a moment. Stay with us. All right, we're back. This is Ellie Newman, and I'm here with George Nickel. And we are going to talk a little bit about uh, brain injuries in the military and, and in general. Um, and, and the way I want to talk about that is connected with something you mentioned already, George, about even in therapy in those two years when you were kind of in the waiting stance to not be able to really tell what was going on or you might be discharged. And again, um, it was surprising to me that you and I think maybe most but many um, – want to stay and that being put on a plane is the worst possible outcome if you are in service right then. And I think one reason that's not what I expected is I think it's very different from past wars when we had the draft. Um, maybe in Vietnam and, and prior to that, Korea, where there were a lot of people that didn't want to be there to begin with. But now in Afghanistan and in Iraq, people have volunteered. And especially for you where it was career um, you wanted to be there, and you I, wanted to go back. I did, yes. Now, going back uh, was kind of an odd thing because you got one side. I mean, like I said, straight out of high school, I went into the military, and that's what you trained for. All those years, that's what you trained for. And really, I didn't mind being over there. It's It's not... It's less complicated than here in the the States. 
going back was the I felt I had some misconceived notion in my mind at that time that because of the way I got back I didn't feel like I finished what I started so I felt that if I could go back I could at least maybe find some closure for the way I left because I didn't come home with my unit because uh, coming back from Walter Reed they're at least the unit when they came back they went through Fort Lewis Washington together and were discharged all at the same time so you have that kind of let that group cohesion as you exit. And if you don't leave the same way and have that closure, it's almost as if you are not as same part of the group the way the, the rest of the group kind of goes forward. Oh, that's, I mean, that's entirely true because I left midway through our deployment to go back to Walter Reed. And so I was here in Boise before they got, they returned from Iraq. So we had the opportunity to go and see them when they got back. And you do feel disconnected because they've already been through so many more shared experiences after you leave. You don't feel like, because they're telling stories that you weren't part of. Uh, New people came into the unit. It's just, you just don't feel that connected anymore. So you've got non-closure and then an additional layer of isolation (laughs) from the one group that you sort of had had connection with. Correct. And it had been the stability during all the stress there and then back, back here in the States. So even if you don't recognize it at the time, you know, unconsciously, it really puts you in a very uh, sense of aloneness. So there's been a, a number of news stories in the last couple of years on New York Times and, and NPR um, about one Staff Sergeant Eric James, an Army sniper who had recorded sessions in his psychiatrist's office at Fort Carson, um, Colorado, and the therapist again and again sort of telling him he was fine and really kind of what you said, not only what you got in initial training and what you get when you're an infantryman, but in a therapist's office, sort of like buck up, it wasn't that bad, you didn't really go through that many stressful things, um, uh, you know, kind of ignoring the feelings of suicide, um, which again, I think everyone who didn't have experience in any kind of military are pretty surprised and appalled. Um, that may not be as surprising to you, um, having having been in the military for so long and sort of seeing um, and, and being very aware that you have to make a balance there because you don't want to be kicked out. You don't want to lose your career. You don't want to lose your retirement pay or health insurance. Um, And the same sort of thing was happening with brain injuries for a number of years. It seems like it started to shift in 2009 with Mullins Gray uh, team in Iraq and Afghanistan and where they started to realize and then prove that even if someone wasn't bleeding, if they'd been involved in a bomb blast and especially many bomb blasts that and they were experiencing memory loss and confusion and sleep problems, that there was brain trauma. Correct, and like one of the things we didn't know at the time was the cumulative effect of blast injuries, the multiple, where you don't even think you're concussed. You know, something blows up near your truck, and you're just like, oh, okay, everybody's good, truck's good, everybody keep rolling. But you don't realize, but you've had a very mild concussion, and you do that repeatedly. And before you know it, you have guys who they're not tracking what day it is, you know, nausea, confusion, and it's something, it's, it's, I think a good word is insidious. It just kind of creeps up on you. Because a lot of times, I mean, 
being over there, you're doing missions, you're on a 24-hour schedule, you're not sleeping right anyway, you're not eating right. You're in a pretty stressful environment 24-7. Exactly. So you're not so much clearly thinking anyway. So you're not even paying attention to those things that I guess they're checking for now. Well, and, and Dr. Mullins says he didn't really realize until he had been in a number of situations where he had been in blast, and he saw himself, he had a mirror next to his cot, and he looked in the mirror, and all of a sudden he recognized all of the symptoms of brain injury on himself just by looking in the mirror, and that sort of shifted his his whole perspective and also, I think, his motivation to make sure that changes ensued. And they're learning so much more. I mean, they've learned a lot over this past decade. Unfortunately, you know, because they've had a lot of people to that have experienced it. But even, I mean, like I got the Walter Reed in February of 07, and I got to spend a couple hours in an MRI machine because I was asked, you know, hey, would you mind doing this test for us? We're still collecting data on traumatic brain injuries. So I got this laying an MRI doing, you know, a, a TV test where they're watching your brain as you go through a series of like cognitive testing procedures. Yeah, with all the new brain mapping, you mm-hmm. know, they have so many new capabilities. And so at that point, though, there wasn't enough for them to say and maybe save you those two years of suffering in limbo that, hey, you know what, you do have a brain injury and, and maybe you won't be going back. Well, I mean, they could tell I had a brain injury yeah. just through the MRIs. I had shearing in the white matter of my frontal lobe and then i got some scar tissue in my temporal lobe so i mean so they can see physical evidence of brain injury but pretty much what i was told was when i was there is well you may get most of everything back cognitively memory wise it may come back or it may not we can't tell there's no set you know like like my broken bones you know what we're going to set them we're going to put these metal pieces in them we're going to put a cast on them and they're going to heal and they're going to heal pretty normally. With a brain injury... They don't know. It's a muscle. They don't know which synapses will reconnect right. and what new pathways will be built and, and how much function and cognition will return. Exactly. And it's only time will tell that. And is that a pretty stressful place to be in and add to your other stress? That, okay, oh, great. Uh, well, did you see? When you're dealing with a brain injury, probably one of the most frustrating things is most of the time you think... And because you, you know, here's here's who I am. I can function at a certain level. And you're running into a bunch of things, then you're finding you can't function at that level. But pretty much you're telling yourself, I should be able to function at this level. And some you might not be aware of until you're in the situation, or even then you might not understand what's not functioning as it had been before. So let's talk a little bit about uh, NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, and the CIT. Uh, NAMI is a national organization for support awareness and changing the perception and conversation around mental health and mental illness and the CIT program is crisis intervention uh, training their local initiatives designed to improve the way law enforcement and the community respond to people experiencing mental health crisis and in your particular situation it, it may have have saved your life so I get the the pleasure and, and honor of speaking to you today. Um, and I want to just talk, we mentioned a, a couple, but the elements of the CIT training that, that first responders um, learn. And one is to teach the PTSD indicators. Because although I think now everyone's familiar with the term pretty much generally, I don't think people really realize what the main 
um, symptoms are and indicators might be. And then once they're in a situation, something like yours, where someone may be suffering from PTSD or another mental health issue, um, to de-escalate, to create dialogue, which you said, George, was the one thing that really shifted things, uh, to be flexible. And I thought in your situation and in any situation with a veteran, it made sense that that was so critical to not give a direct order, you know, to, to put your weapon down or to sit down or stand down, because at that point, you might not be, a person might not be in a place to be able to do that. And that shouldn't be the thing that then dictates whether guns are going to be fired. And it's not just, I mean, my, my situation was kind of severe because there was already, already firearms involved in it. But you want to get the, the education out to first responders, mainly because so you can make an attempt to de-escalate the situation before it becomes, say, violent or force needs to be used for controlling somebody. So if you can, if you can be aware of where someone's at, and uh, a lot of veterans, I mean, myself included, you know, we got we got certain things like some of us wear certain things where you, if you know what you're looking for, you can pick out uh, the agitation levels when you're dealing with post traumatic stress, and it's also it kind of blends over because it's a, it's a symptom of both TBI and post traumatic stress. They list it as irritability, but I think I think that kind of downplays it a little bit. And so, do you think if the officers and the first responders are educated enough for those type of elements that they'll be more likely to at least think maybe this is that situation, and and attempt to take the steps to to de-escalate? No, I think I think the education is the key on how they if they can if they can pick up the signs that maybe they are dealing with a veteran, and you know. I've talked to a lot of veterans, and, well, you know, you could ask them, are you a veteran, and get them talking about their military service, which kind of, whatever the incident is, why the law enforcement is there to begin with, if you can maybe shift the focus away from that. I mean, I deal with a lot of veterans, and it's it's a lot of common elements when dealing with law enforcement. A lot has to do with dealing with alcohol, be it, you know, driving under the influence, uh drunken public, fighting, domestic violence, those types of things where they're already in an agitated sense to begin with. So you bring the law enforcement in, now you have somebody who say they are experiencing post-traumatic stress, maybe some TB, residual TBI symptoms, they're already agitated, maybe they're not thinking very clearly, and they're already in that fight, they're, they've moved beyond that fight or flight mode. Because one thing when you're dealing in the combat arms side of the military, well, you got fight or flight, but there is no really flight. Yeah, <laughs> that's taken off the table. Pretty much fight. Right. So when a, when faced with a threat, you fight. Well, if they view that that say like that first responder coming into the scene as a direct threat, then the propensity could be that they're going to fight. So if they can they can identify what what they're looking at if it is a veteran, or if they've been educated in other forms of, of mental health issues, or if they can identify, well, this person may have some mental health issues, and then use their training, that CIT training, to de-escalate the situation because now they know what they're dealing with. And then it wouldn't turn into a force situation or a lethal force situation like mine was. And hopefully, I mean, that's what it's all about is, you know, saving lives. And One of the things that you had said that 
was escalating the situation at the time where the sirens were all on. It was very noisy. And one of the elements of the program is to slow it down, to eliminate the noise and distraction. You know, if there's sirens on, if the TV's going, if there's if there's noises and, and distractions, they're going to add to the, the internal escalation um, of, the, of the person. And having one person talk. I mean, that's... It, it's already a confused situation internally. Your brain's not tracking where you're at. You're kind of really questioning, like I was in that stairwell. I was at that point where I'm re- I was really questioning. It's like, I know I'm breaching doors. I had that weird notion that someone took my dog, so that was my threat. Or at least that's what my brain told me. And so your body I, responded. My body responded. Else. And breaching doors, that's something, that's a learned skill. So my brain Set said, okay. Off. And that's, and that's why a lot of training in the military is so repetitive because they're, they're instilling that muscle memory because when you're in really chaotic situations where you're not thinking clearly, you want to you wanna be able to fall back onto that training you receive. So it's without, you're, out, you're working without thought. So when you're in that situation like I was in that night where I'm already had that great confusion going on inside my head, now you throw in all those other outside stimuli with the lights and a bunch of people yelling at you. Now you really, the hopes of coming back to a focal point just start really slipping, slipping away rapidly. So by that one officer establishing that, that soul dialogue, I mean, because all the other officers there, they still had their guns yelling. pointed at me. And you said that shifted you, that all of a sudden you realized they're not a threat. Right. I mean... He, he got my attention, you know, we started that dialogue, why are you doing this? And and that allowed me to kind of move through the clutter of my own head and say, oh, I'm here, this is here and now, these are police. Well, and there's probably a physiological response as well, right? Like, like mentally you're thinking that, but I'm sure like everything in the body, all the synapses are like, okay, stand down, stand down. We can stand down. Now right, it's like taking that deep breath. Yeah. Because <sighs> you're already working. I mean, massive adrenaline dump, elevated heart rate, you know, usually elevated breathing. So to be able to, to like I said, it's like taking that deep breath. I mean, for anybody that's ever been, say, like in a, in a near car wreck, a lot of people experience that, so they can relate. Where you got to stop and take a minute, and your hands are shaking, and you just say, ah. "Yeah." And I thought about hadn't thought about the level that that must be escalated to when you don't have the flight option. Right. Right. Because everything's a fight. Yeah. So regardless of outcome. So right then, that must jack everything up tremendously. So. One of the most important elements they talk about in the video and they talk about in the program, and that I think you experienced this either towards the end of your time in jail or when you when you got out, when you were dealing with, with the charges, was having resources available and having law enforcement and the court system connected with these resources that are available in the community and letting the veteran know about them and have access to them. Because it seemed like um, there was a lot of collaboration with you and for you as to dealing with your charges and and having a a better and more um, fitting outcome. Because in the past... uh and one of the reasons all this is so important with all these agencies, like like I've worked a lot with uh, Idaho Veterans Network. I'm going to talk about that next. Okay. 
but the resources out there, you know, veterans are out there, they get out of it. And if they don't know what resources are out there or how to access the resources, or even if the resources even exist, then you are out there all by yourself and you're isolated. So it's getting that collaborative effort between like the community, uh, federal, like the VA, uh, state, county with law enforcement, uh, with the court systems. I mean, if you can really get everybody working that same cohesive outcome. And then the follow-up as well, right, for for the the police officers and the first responders, but also for the veterans, you know, for the police officers to go back and say what worked, what didn't, so they can keep honing it. But for the veterans to say, okay, wow, like I'm sitting in jail now, like what options do I have and what options can be supported for me that are more appropriate for what was actually going on? So how did you end up, because then you um, uh, found your new identity, leaving off the sergeant and, and, and the uniform, uh, a degree in social work from Boise State. I know you had been working on that at some point. Um, how was the negotiated settlement worked out with you um, when you were charged? Okay, so I was charged originally with, uh, what, five counts of aggravated assault, uh, discharging a firearm within an occupied dwelling, and the use of a firearm in the commission of a felony. Uh, so I was given a withheld judgment through uh, Judge Bale because Veterans Court didn't exist at this time. And she put on it as a condition of probation, I have to go into treatment. So I went straight from the jail, sentencing, straight into the VA hospital. So it wasn't a choice anymore. Right. It wasn't a choice anymore. I mean, yeah, I could have walked away. There's no fence around the hospital. Uh, and I went through three weeks of residential substance abuse to deal with the alcohol abuse issues. And then six weeks of an inpatient post-traumatic stress uh, treatment program. And it really, I mean, yeah, you took away that element of uh, not so much control, but, uh, there was a little more incentive, a little bit more incentive, <laughs> but I think more importantly, it allowed me to focus just on my treatment without any outside, uh, problems, didn't have to deal with anything. You're there 24 hours a day. You're with other veterans going through the same thing. So it's that shared experience and it really just helps you just to concentrate on healing yourself. And did you get some closure as well in that experience? Do you feel like? Maybe through the whole episode. I don't know if I for a hundred percent. I'm not there yet for that. Ever hundred percent. So let's talk a little bit about the Idaho Veterans Network. I want to start. I'm going to read a quote that that you had on the website. I truly believe that without the help and support of the Idaho Veterans Network, I would either be in prison or a homeless drunk. I have started seeing my kids again. I really look forward to Thursday night. In fact, my parents wanted to take me out to a birthday dinner on this Thursday, the 31st, and I told them, nope, got group on Thursday, so now we're going to dinner on Wednesday. The camaraderie that is amongst the IVN members is top-notch. I really enjoy the stuff we do outside of Group 2, attending the local car shows and talking to people to get the IVN name out, and the same with going to Mayhem Fest. We're going to hear what Mayhem Fest is. In the end, I cannot express my thanks and gratitude to the Idaho Veterans Network for all that they have done for me. So I'm hoping that's making you feel pretty good. It is. Yes, I love those kind of 
Thanks so so tell me how that got started and and what it is and how people how it's helping people and and what you feel it is about it that makes it work okay so the idaho veterans network because i was in a reserve unit in boise i mean you got the reserves there you got not just army reserves you got marine corps reserves you have a navy reserve unit there you got the idaho air national guard you have the idaho national guard there and since 2001 all the way up to my time in 2009 units were constantly deploying out of there so the idaho veterans that work originally started as a nonprofit for family support like families would come together they'd make care packages to send to whatever unit was deployed and so we had a it was a well-known collection because they it was also a place for spouses to come together while the units were deployed as resources so it was when I was sitting in jail that I got involved with them, or they came to got involved with me because I was part of the unit, and the unit was still deployed, like I said. So everybody knew each other. So, so they had somehow been notified. Oh, yeah. So they came to talk to me because, I mean, I needed an attorney, and there was no really a good attorneys around that you know, were really versed in the military and post-military life. So they did a lot of work, work with my attorney because – Pretty much my attorney had this big, thick, you know, 8-inch thick medical record to go through, and it's all in military acronyms, so someone had to sit and go through it, and like, in my normal, just my normal military record, personnel record, to go through to explain what everything was, all the awards and decorations were. But they were a big support for me while I was in, in jail, and going through the hospital. And when I got out, we really started contacting, like, other people from the unit, and a lot of us were sitting around, and a lot of things, I mean, there was resources at the at the VA hospital, but a lot of the things that they were offering were like middle of the afternoon on a Wednesday. Well, a lot of the guys that we deployed with, they came back, well, they got jobs, they got families, they can't take a Wednesday afternoon off to go to a group or something. And there were some who, they just didn't want to get involved with the VA. So we were all sitting around and we were talking a lot about, well, someone should do something, someone should do something, and it's like, well, why don't we do something? So we found a place there locally in Boise. It's actually a, a an adult daycare facility. And the owner of it had a relation with one of the people we were deployed with. And she said, yeah, we close down at five. You can use it. And it's a big open space, great for a group. So we started every Thursday night and putting the word out, hey, any veterans wants to come by, we got this group going on. It's not We're not affiliated with any organization any government agency and there was probably three to five of us where we'd be the only ones showing up and we'd bring food every thursday because turns out veterans like to eat and just by word of mouth and some referrals because now we're working with law enforcement getting referrals from them you know like they'd run into a veteran in the community wasn't quite an arrest situation and they would give the name to us so we'd go and make contact with them we're getting a better relationship with the VA, so we're getting, you know, collaborative effort with them. And just kept sticking it out and eventually just kept growing and growing and so veterans can come. They know every Thursday night they can come there, they can get a meal. And for some veterans who were living pretty much uh, a few hundred bucks a month, I mean we'd load them up with big tank out boxes on the way out. 
and we do little fundraisers around town, like the like I mentioned that quote, the car shows. Mm-hmm. Just and that's that's the only reason we. You're not going to tell me what Mayhem Fest is. Mayhem, <laughs> no, Mayhem Fest was a big rock festival that came through, and we actually had a booth there. So three of the veterans from group got to go sit at the booth, and they got to meet like some of the the rock, the performers because they were there setting up, and they just had a blast there. So it's working. It is, yes. And you had said, and and I think it was someone else's quote, but you said that it really stuck with you, learning to cope as opposed to getting back to before. And it seems like you've created uh, a new paradigm where interception is early. You, you throw in this lifeline, and it's not about getting back to who you were, where you were prior, but going forward. You can never go back. Ever, I mean, the things you experience that change you, that you still do with it, deal with every day. There's no saying, you know, I, I was a great person before I went to Iraq. I want to be that person again. Well, I, I personally, I believe that's that's a that's a false notion and it's a false belief. You can never go back to that person. So you learn how to be a new person. And the great thing about that Thursday night group is guys can go there. And they can they can tell their stories and talk to other ones who've been through, and they're at different different places in their in their journey. So someone new coming in that's having a really hard time can sit there and talk to guys like you know, and I've dealt with that exact same thing. And it it works for the post combat issues no different than it works. It's the same reason it works for like substance abuse, where people moving through their own journeys can look back and say, you know what, I've been there. So let me let me help this new person out because they're obviously struggling and I've already been there and I know what works. And, you know, take them by the hand or put an arm around their shoulder and say, you know what, you'll get through this. It gets better, honest. It, it really does get better. I think this new identity of yours is pretty darn impressive. I was going to say that. And I hope that creating and working more in, in the group and making the video has brought you some closure. And I had seen that there's a in memoriam for... Um, Sergeant Jim Holton and Sergeant Ross Clevenger and RFC Raymond Werner, who were your three buddies that were in the tank with you that day. Mm -hmm. So thank you very much for joining us.